it's all those things combined, right? Like having the willpower, you know, thinking positive thoughts, like the whole law of attraction thing. There's some merit to all these things that have been written about, about having a mindset around something that you want and willing yourself into the things that you see for yourself. But I wouldn't change anything though, because, you know, to my earlier point, I think it's those struggles that create the lessons that without the two, it just doesn't work. So for everything I struggled through, it makes so many little things now easy for me, you know, that the skin has been thickened. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Hey ladies, it's time to put your badass boss babe hat on. Head over to femcanic.com's resource page and create your personal listing and your business listing if you have one of those too. No cost to you at all, just shameless self-promotion. Talent recruiters for jobs, radio, and TV gigs have leveraged this page to discover talent. Come on ladies. It's time to get your self-promotion on. Remember, femcanic.com, resource tab at the top, and click the Yes, I'm a Badass Woman. Rachel James is in the driver's seat today. Rachel comes from a blue-collar family and grew up around cars and planes her whole life. She attended vocational school and went on to ECAT for aviation maintenance. Rachel decided to focus on automotive and was a tech for multiple years. She was approached by a PPG distributor and landed a role as a territory manager. She made another career change three years ago and opened her own practice for financial planning. Now sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B coming to you, and I have Rachel James in the driver's seat today. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited to be on today. Looking forward to the uh, conversation. Yeah, me as well. We had (laughs) my intention is always to have like a 25 minute pre interview, and you and I went down a couple. Uh, personal development (laughs) rabbit holes because we both have a passion for that. So I thoroughly enjoyed your recommendations. I downloaded some of them, purchased some of the books, the audio books already. And I saw that you got the Dale Carnegie Mm -hmm. book as well. Oh yeah. There was a lot of book ordering after our last conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. It's like an addiction or something. I get it. But I am so glad that you're on here. Uh, I actually stumbled upon you Geez, last year, when my daughter was in seventh grade, there was a 30-minute difference between when my son had to be at school and when my daughter had to be at school because he was in elementary and she was in middle school. So I dropped my son off. Then I'd go to the middle school, and she and I would sit there, peruse around on TikToks and Instagram and different things like that. And it was one of those mornings that one of your – I don't know if it it had to be like a hashtag or something that you must have did, and it, it popped up. And I'm like, huh, this is interesting. And then 
I reached out to you and here we are about a year later. I know. And we are sitting here shooting the shit. I know. Well, that's cool. I didn't know the backstory there. That's kind of cool. And I'm glad you were patient with me because I feel like I was like all over the place. But I'm glad we finally connected. And our conversation last time was so awesome. So I'm looking forward to whatever we talk about today. I'm sure it'll be interesting, at least to me. (laughs) Well, what fascinated me about your journey is you and I have similar, well, you're currently doing it, but my background, I had my Series 7, Series 66. And I was a financial advisor for Morgan Stanley for just under 10 years. And you do that now. You're a financial planner, Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, But we kind of Mm flip-flopped, right? So you were in the automotive industry for almost a decade? More, more than that. More than that? Yeah, it was eight or nine years with PPG and then, um, you know, distributors and shops before that. So probably 15, maybe maybe more. Yeah. Around there. Good amount. Your story fascinated me and I wanted to learn more about it. And in the pre-interview, I don't go completely down the path of my guest stories because I want authentic reactions, Mm, right? This, this authentic and organic conversation. So what I'd like to do is do a throwback. So why did you go down that path in the automotive industry? Um, you know, I, I think it was just a passion at an early age in some weird way. Like I idolized my dad. Uh, he was a airplane mechanic and I remember even like in elementary school being like so fascinated by it and just like being so proud and like bragging about it. And, and ironically, as I got into high school, you know, friends were kind of working on cars and my dad always had cars in the driveway. And we just always, that was sort of something that it was a bonding thing between my dad and I, and also was just what I found myself getting into. I was going to the dragway. I was going to races. I was really interested in cars. And, um, I learned a lot, you know, being the assistant to my dad at times with various projects around the house or, or in the garage. And I was never really a good student in high school. Uh, I really struggled a lot with just academics. I love it now. Now I could read every book you you hand me. I, w- I could soak it up. Um, but at that time, it just wasn't something that I excelled at. And I remember having like a real heart to heart with my dad and mom about like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I have no idea. And I felt really lost. And the advice my dad basically gave me was just do something you love and it really won't feel like work. And at that time, I was pretty much living at New England Dragway. Um, So I was like, all right, maybe I'll kind of explore that path. And initially, I looked at um, going to an automotive, like tech school, right, post high school. And, and then I actually, my dad went to East Coast Aerotech, which is an aviation uh, maintenance school. And I kind of went through a few schools to try and figure out like where I wanted to go. And I just remember I enjoyed East Coast Aerotech because it had welding, it had metal fabrication, it had plumbing, it had electrical, it had mechanical, it had, you know, there was so many different things you were learning in that school compared to just automotive, which no, no, uh, knock at it. Right. But it just, I liked that going to this school, I'd have all these other, um, things to learn about. And then it was just from there. I mean, I never really intended to go back into automotive. It was like, I, I really fell in love with the aviation world, but I wound up 
getting a job at a, a Nissan dealership as a technician and had good leadership. And it just, I got sucked in and it, you know, the rest is history. You know, then there was a million things that happened thereafter, but that was sort of, I guess for me, the initial path in and, and truth be told, like I excelled the second I made that switch, I went from being a, a poor student to staying late, you know, student council president of the school. I was, you know, good grades, everything changed for me then. And, and that's when I realized like, okay, this is, there's something here for me. You were just drawn to it. Mm-hmm. So you graduated from high school, mm-hmm. then you went to the, the trade school. Yep. Right after the trade school, you got into the Nissan dealership. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. It always fascinates me, women's experiences at trade schools. What was your experience like at the trade school? <laughs> um, it was interesting. There was a lot of, um, you know, it was me. There was, um, it, it was very difficult. Like I, I would preface it with, in the aviation world back then, and I don't know if it's the same now, but. It was very cutthroat. I think we started with like, I don't know, 50 kids in our class. By the time we graduated, there was only like eight or nine of us. Like you really do kind of, you can't miss time. You have to pass tests. There's a very uh, small margin of error. And there was myself and two other women in the school. Um, So not, you know, out, out of hundreds of kids, right, in different classes, but I was one of very few. And I would say on the majority, it was pretty awesome. Like it was a really cool experience. I had a lot of people that really did uh, appreciate me and and welcome me with open arms, but there was also some people that really didn't like me. Um, And it's sort of the good old boys club. Like I had some work sabotaged. I had one instructor come up to me once and tap me on the back and, and basically say like, you should probably like watch your back. I think there's some people here that don't want you to, to finish. And I thought, and I did, like remember just being kind of like shocked, like what, like who would care, like what, what? An instructor told you that, yeah. And uh, so I just remember being like, what? So then it turned into one of the teachers, and I probably should have pushed more on it, but back then was different. I mean, we're talking over a decade, fifteen years ago, right? Um, so one of the teachers actually was submitting false dress code violations and and like submitting all these like falsified things to the dean. So I get. I get called into the dean's office. To you? On me, on on my behalf to the dean. So I remember I got pulled into the dean's office and he's like, we're going to have to expel you from school. And I'm like, what? Like, what, for what? Like, what? I was, I just remember being like flabbergasted. I had, you know, A's in all my classes. I, I, you know, showed up on time. I passed all my tests. And he's like, well, I have all these violations. Like, what, you know, what am I going to do? And I remember just being like blown away. I'm like, I've never even seen any of these violations. Like, how can you write one up if I've never even, what, how does, how does this work? And thankfully there was a lot of other students in my class that, you know, cause I, I just was like so angry. I, I was fuming at that point. I don't blame you. Thankfully there was a lot of other students that were like, what the, you know, with me. Yeah. And they all went storming into the Dean's office and, and pretty much called out, you know, the teacher for what he did. The only thing that was awkward though, is they never did anything with the teacher. So I had to finish out that class, you know, now knowing like he didn't want me there. I knew what he had done. It just became this very contentious uh, relationship for a period of time. So like, and, and that's one of many things that happened, but I really wanted the end. And, and I really feel like 
skipping that struggle, I never would have learned the lesson. It taught me that the world isn't fair, that there are going to be people that just because you are who you are, it's going to piss some people off. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there was, con- I mean, that's just one that's safe to put <laughs> on air. There's plenty of things that just were for lack of, can we swear here? I don't even know. It's your episode, sister. <laughs> there was it's just whatever you want it to be. There were things that were bullshit. Um, and there always were, but I think in the end, I knew that I wanted to, to follow this path. And I knew that this was the first time in my life I had ever really like been good at something that it was like, I need to finish this and see it through. And, and also I had some close friends that like, at least, you know, had my back and supported me and, and wanted, you know, that was also comforting too. I have to process out loud because just listening, Rachel, like I'm feeling pissed off. Yeah. For a couple, for a couple of reasons. Let me, let me clarify some things because you're an attractive woman and there's some listeners that are assuming that, hey, maybe not assuming, they're wondering, well, what were you wearing that caused these dress code violations? Mm-hmm. What would you actually wear to class? Yeah. So... I mean, one, I think we've talked about this a little bit. There was no, at that time, they didn't have women's versions of work boots, women's versions of pants. So it was mm-hmm. men's pants, right? Like there was no way to, to do different things. So I would wear jeans, which was part of the approved dress code. Um, Were there holes in them? There was rips and tears and things like that, you know, on certain ones, but because they were just grungy, I wouldn't wear my like perfectly nice jeans I'd wear out. They were ones that were. So were there holes by your crotch at all? No. Oh my God. No, no, no. These, I mean. So they, like they were, in your knees. Yeah. Like they were just worn jeans that were, you know, okay to get dirty and destroy. And what about a shirt? Did you like have your boobs hanging out and like a no. tank top underneath? No, or? it just, what was funny with that was it was, you know, this big boxy shirt. Like they never would have heat in the building. So I'd have my, you know, East Coast uniform on and then I'd have like a zip up hoodie over it. But, you know, again, it's like- You had layers on. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I truly, like the things I was wearing were no different than any other student there. I mean, every other student, when it was cold, had a hoodie over their uniform, had jeans that weren't perfectly crisp, had, you know, boots. I'm just curious what was on this. What would he actually write? He just wrote inappropriate attire, didn't show up for class, was late, you know, all things like they they were all fictitious. There was no merit to it. It was wow. all fictitious stuff. I mean, I, maybe he was leaning on things to make it appear one way or another. But at the end of the day, I wasn't wearing anything different in terms of contextual. You know, it was it was the same stuff, just in a woman's body. I, I think probably the most disappointing thing to me, Rachel, and this isn't the first time that I've heard this, and calling out all educational institutions, how was nothing done? with that instructor. They literally lied about things and you had multiple students going in and saying that it's wrong. It's not accurate. Yeah. Like how does that, you have other instructors coming to you saying, Hey, watch your back. It was a different time. That still happens today though. Oh, for sure. Oh, it absolutely does. And and I, I think the culture for sure that was back then was keep your mouth shut. Just 
put your head down, say nothing, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Because if I had spoken out, then I would have been, you know, the crazy vocal woman of, you know, I would have almost lost in some way respect back then. Because we're talking about, ironically, we're right around the time of um, 9-11. I mean, that's kind of when we were there. So it it was a different time. Mm -hmm. It just didn't, you didn't speak up about it. I remember being really, really mad, but there was, like I said, I, thankfully there were some other people that became really good friends, like that saw that and stood up. There was people that I never would have thought would have stood up for me that went right into that dean's office and were like, "What the heck?" And that's the good stuff right there. I've worked with a uh, journalist, and we put out a uh, series, a blog series uh, for Women's History Month, and we're going to go back and keep updating it every year. But one of the things that is talked about a lot in that Rachel is the third party bystander. So it's the the observers. Mm-hmm. That's how this stuff stops. Because you're in a tough position because you're the crazy woman that's just complaining about it, right? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. You're bringing up valid things, but it's going to take those third party bystanders that are observing this to change and move the needle on this because they need to speak up and say stuff. And they did, which is awesome. Now, you graduated from there. You worked at the Nissan dealership. Did you have a hard time finding a job? Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. So what was funny was (laughs) I actually got turned down the first time I applied at this Nissan dealership. So I I applied everywhere, everywhere under the sun. Like, I had other jobs. So, like, I I had odds and end jobs. Like, I worked for a friend's landscaping company, and I did plow maintenance. And I did also – you know, I always had – a job and I was always mechanically doing things, but I really wanted a real, in my mind at the time, like a real job with benefits at a dealership. Like I wanted, or a big institution, like I wanted a real job, not sort of like an under the table cash job. And I interviewed everywhere, everywhere. And I got turned down everywhere. I went to every dealership in Massachusetts. Did they give you reasons? Yeah. Oh yeah. They'd flat out say, I don't, we don't have, a women's room. We're not that progressive. We don't hire women. No way. Like my, my guys are pigs. Like there's no way I could have you in my shop. Um, and it, you know, I started really dressing down for interviews. Like I was really like no makeup, just like baseball hat. Like I was really almost trying to make myself look frumpy to try and (laughs) like make this work. And I had the ability to, you know, get jobs. I had all these like side work and things like that of people that knew me, but no one at the time was in a place of influence to get me into a real, real deal job. And ironically, I had actually interviewed at this dealership and the guy, the manager was like, I can't, I can't hire you. I don't have, you know, we don't have the setup. We've never had a female mechanic. I don't know how this would work. And at the time, ironically, he was using the women's room as his like executive bathroom they had it actually in the dealership set up for women, but it was the manager's special, you know, changing room or whatever. And it, what wound up happening was it was a, my uncle happened to golf with this guy at some sort of tournament. And it came out that I had been struggling, trying to find it. You know, here I am, I, I, I'm more than qualified, if anything, overqualified to work on a car. Right. Um, and it was like, he was venting about it and he's like, she's actually good. Like she did my breaks. Like, you know, like why won't people hire her? So I get a phone call. I remember I was out with my friend, Carrie at the time we're out driving and I get this random phone call on, on my, you know, new cell phone. 
And I'm like, cause I'd never had one. I'm like, Oh, I got a cell phone now. I'm cool. And, um, I remember answering the call and it was this manager and he's like, all right, I'll give you 30 days, bring your toolbox in on Saturday and I'll give you a shot. But if anything goes wrong, that's it. Like it's a 30 day thing and we'll, we'll figure it out at the end of 30 days. So I'm like, Ooh, okay. And I just remember being so like, I was so excited. I, I remember telling my friend Carrie, like, Oh my God, I finally got like a spot. And, um, and then the anxiety kicked in of like, I've interviewed at every single dealership in Eastern Massachusetts and gotten turned down by every single one. Like, Oh shit, this is my only shot. Like if I mess this up, that's it. Like I'm, I'm done. So the anxiety started kicking in and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I started to like second guess myself, like, can I do this? I was like hyperventilating, like, oh my gosh. And um, I remember my friend Liz came, she had a truck. We put my toolbox in the back of her truck that Saturday morning and I went to drop it off. And I, I was like, I was really anxious. I'm like, oh man, oh man, oh man. But I just kept like telling myself, like, just, just get there and you'll figure it out. So we get there and, you know, the manager's like, okay, here's your bay. And I got to wheel my toolbox into to my bay, which was so cool. And um, everyone there, all techs on the floor kind of looked at me um, timid, you know, like you could see, like they were just kind of like, hi, and then like went back to work. So first day, like that Monday, I go in and the roach coach would come in the morning and the afternoon for like break food. So we would, you know, get, we all get food and we went to the break room. Whoa, whoa, educate me. Roach coach? <laughs> yes. What, what the that hell might, is that? That might be a Boston slang word. But that's, <laughs> educate yeah, me. It's like the food truck. That, you know, the food truck that comes oh, by the... The roach <laughs> coach. <laughs> Translate that because that sounds nasty. Yeah. Well, it is nasty on there. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> but yet you eat it. Yeah. You know. Um Oh, I'm starting to hear a little bit of the Boston accent come out when you talk about it. <laughs> I try to hide that away, but no. So no, don't yeah. hide it, man. But so just just for me, the non-Bostonian Roach Coach is a food truck. Yeah. Okay, but not not <laughs> like the nice like cute roach uh, cute food trucks that you see like on TV on uh, like you know the the ones that are coming to the construction site, you know. <laughs> like, where they're probably sweating over yeah, your Yeah, like, it, you know, the ones that have been through, like, shop to shop to shop. The slang, the, we always call it a roach coach. Okay, I got it. <laughs> I, mean, I just wanted to make it. It's not I'm, the I'm, most I'm endearing wait. term, but that's, I mean, <laughs> that's what we call it. Um, okay, so I'm with you now. So the roach coach pulls up. <laughs> so I got, you know, whatever I ordered, I don't know. And we go into the lunchroom and no one's talking. Like no one's talking and I'm like, well, this is going to be like awesome, you know? So I'm just like eating, you know, eating my food and I'm like looking around and everyone else is looking around. And there was one kid who uh, like loved this guy, but he had no, you know, common sense isn't commonplace. Like he just, you know, he, what I would later learn is that he just spoke whatever came to his mind. So he's maybe not. The most socially attuned. Yes, person. but actually, good-hearted, meant the best, yeah. just spoke right from the the mind. That sounds like my son. Yeah, my my son is one of the most loving, kind people. He has ADHD, and socially, I think he's on the spectrum. Um, but socially, just totally misses social cues. 
you know, you can't be perfect. Everything. But a loving, caring person. Yeah. He doesn't do it because he's a jerk. He just. Yeah. He just doesn't know. He just doesn't know. So this, this poor kid basically just, he says, um, he starts talking about his drive in in the morning that he was stuck behind this woman driving in. And he starts complaining about this woman driving and he's like this, you know, and he's using swear words. He's using like this bitch, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and now everyone's like holding their sandwich mid bite, like not, you would hear a needle drop because everybody's like looking at him with like the beady eyes, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And this guy's just like, this woman drove me nuts. It was, you know, cause he's trying to fill the dead air and all the other guys are like freaking out. Cause like of all the things for you to fill the dead air. <laughs> to complain about this woman driving, right? And of course, like, it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, okay, like, that stinks for him. Like, I'm not even, you know, but I'm like looking at, then I start to see everyone yeah. else's face and I'm like, oh my God, they're paranoid that I'm going to freak out on them <laughs> or like there's going to be some sort of altercation. Report them or something. Yeah. And that, you know, so they're, yeah. now they're all looking at me and I'm like, what? Like, sounds like she was a really bad driver. Like, I don't know. That's frustrating. <laughs> and then, it, you know, and but from that point on, they all were like, oh, okay, good. You know, and, and yeah. so then it came out to be that like the, the manager had told them like, you guys take one false step. You say one wrong thing. I'll fire you immediately. Like there's going to be no, you know, so they had all been read. Wait, I want to, I want to pause. Yeah. I want to pause for one second. And I want the listeners to soak that in because- there's so many stories that women share where managers don't say anything, mm-hmm. nothing, right? But you come to find out later that the manager had said something to them like, yeah. guys, he, don't be a pig. He had called them all in. He, so they all had to come in early that morning before I came in. They all had to take down if they had any of the nudies, if they had any of the calendar, you know, the all that had to come down. And he basically read them the riot act and said, if there's any BS. You're out. The, there's no questions. Like toolboxes wow. have wheels. You'll be out. Are you at liberty to share his name so we can give him mad kudos for demonstrating a great, great way to handle this? Yeah, right. He was a great leader. His name was Paul. This is a great example. And Paul, if you ever end up listening to this podcast, thank you for being you. It's the simple things. Mm. That is such a simple thing. Yeah, it was it was very simple. And but it it made me understand like why they were all freaked out because they were like, oh my gosh, yeah. we say the wrong thing, we're gonna lose our jobs. Although it was great, it also created this wall between me and them initially because they were all kind of like, fair. oh man, if like she's gonna get us all fired. But it was after that lunch break that I think they realized. You know what I mean? Because we laughed about it. It was all fine. Days yeah. went by. Obviously, none of them got fired. Like it was never a thing. Um, but those guys working with them was actually really fun. They became brothers like, and, and subsequently thereafter, like it's sort of at that point, once I earned my stripes there, yeah, it subsequently helped me thereafter because it was sort of like, oh, well, I can't, you know, I spent years here and, and it, I worked hard, you know, I came in on Saturdays, I yeah. stay late. And thankfully that manager actually showed me the ropes of the whole dealership. So I, you know, basically said, like, I want to learn, how do you process this warranty? Like when we do a warranty job, what, how does this, what actually happens? I, I want to understand how this all works. So he would show me all sorts of different things. And I guess, you know, that experience there was the groundwork that I liked it so much. I stayed in automotive. I didn't wind up looking or exploring for aviation because it was like, well, I have 
a mentor here that's going to show me and teach me. How long were you ended up being at that dealership? Two years. That's awesome. And it was just a friend of mine worked at a Chevy dealership. At that point, my my peers were also starting to get jobs at places, right? Back when I first was looking, we were all kind of ground level. No one had any like ins. We were all fending for ourselves. It was survival yeah. of the fittest, you know? Yeah. But at that point, I had friends that had sort of landed at different places. And a friend of mine worked at a Chevy dealership. And that's sort of how I got, you know, it just sort of fell on my lap. And you were at that, the Chevy dealership for how long? Probably two and a half years, something like that. And then did you exclusively do mechanical work then? Yeah. So I was mechanical work. It was at the Chevy dealership that I got exposed to the auto body world. So ironically, um, I decided I wanted to get my appraiser's license. So I started going at night. I went to a vocational school and got my appraiser's license while I was in the mechanical side, just because I thought, you know what, it's one more thing I can learn. It'll help me like with the dealership. And ironically, I had like just finished that up and our manager got arrested on, I think he, he got caught with heroin with the secretary or something like that. It was just some fluke, like crazy, crazy, dramatic story that only could happen in a shop. Right. And (laughs) both the manager and secretary were gone. And I remember the owner came down and was like, I heard you have your appraiser's license. Can you just like go over there and hold on the fort until we figure out what, what we're going to do? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And that's, that was sort of my, you know, by chance, that's what got me over the fence of mechanical into auto body. Yes and no. (laughs) It was you taking the initiative to even go get it. True. Right. And, and this is what I tell everyone. I stole it from my grandfather. (laughs) He was an amazing man. I would call him all the time, Rachel. I had such admiration for him. And when I would have a decision to be made, Mm. I would always call and ask him, Grandpa, I don't know what to do. And and he's like, Jamie, this was the the smack in the face for me. (laughs) I remember when I got older, I had graduated college. I was at a crossroads where I was thinking about changing careers. And I was reached out to him to ask his, you know, thoughts, opinions, advice. And he said to me, he said, Jamie, I'm not going to be here forever. One day I will be gone. And I'm going to tell you a secret to all decisions. He said, always ask yourself, will this open doors for me or close doors? And if it opens doors and has the potential to open doors, the answer is always yes. Mm, I love that. And I'm like, that's pretty easy. And you chose and made a decision on something that potentially could open doors for you. You can't lose with those decisions. Yeah. You just can't. It's so true. It's So you did it, Rachel. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Yeah. Well, on that same riff, my dad always said, um, choose with no regret. Because same thing. I'd go to him and be like, what do I, What should I do? They're equally great choices. Which way? And my dad would be like, sometimes you just got to make the choice and never look back. Just go with it. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah. So you became an appraiser. Mm-hmm. Kind of... By chance, By you did the things to set yourself up for the possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, this is another favorite of mine. The people who say, oh, you're so lucky. Like, they may hear that story. And they're like, you got so lucky. No, it's BS. I don't believe in luck. <laughs> yeah. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have opportunities pop up in front of them all the time. But did they prepare properly to set them up for the opportunity to take advantage of it? 
Oh, for sure. Well, I think we often only look at the success. You see what's above the iceberg, right? Like that whole analogy, mm-hmm. like you never see all the work that led up to it and all the, the suffering and all the lessons learned and oh, failing yeah. forward and all that stuff. So yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And then it was, you know, I guess, you know, from that Chevy dealership, I happened to be, um, I worked with this guy's electrical fleet. He was like a repeat customer. He always came back and he had a golfing buddy that owned a paint distributor that distributed PPG paint. And they were looking at, they wanted a woman to work at the company. And this guy was like, I think you need to meet this guy. Like, I really think you need to, like, you both, like, he's been describing someone like you, you, you both need to meet. And I, I just remember being like, all right, like, I'll, I'll talk with him. Sure. Um, So I met with the owner and the vice president. And I remember just being like, so out of my comfort zone, because basically this role was going to be business development. It was going to be more on the refinish side. It was a whole lot of learning. It was a whole other, like, whole other tangent of stuff. And I remember being like, ah, I don't know. So I turned him down the first time I was like, nope, I'm not looking for that kind of, um, I'd worked so hard in my mind up to that point to be respected as a woman and not have to earn my place. And, you know, people at that dealership now at the Chevy one respected me. There was, you know, a lot of respect and it was kind of like, I don't know that I want to go through a whole other iteration of what was your biggest fear. I didn't know, you know, I think what's, interesting about the automotive industry as a whole, no matter what segment you're in, is that they can sniff out bullshit. And I didn't know, you know, with mechanics, I I mean, that's something I had been around since birth, like Mm -hmm. ins, outs, all around. I was in it and I understood it to the point where I knew my answers would always be right. Or I was 90% sure I was right. Mm -hmm. Refinish and and coatings, I was kind of like, oh, this is an area I'm not and this is where I was valuing competence over confidence. I was like, ah, I don't know that I can go into that without the level of education. So I kind of like hesitated on it. Cause I was like, I don't want to have to like, not only prove myself, but also not know what the fuck I'm talking about. Like it's <laughs> right. all going right. to like translate. So I said, no. And they never let go. Like they reached out multiple times. You know, the, that owner would be like, Hey, you know what? You need to give this a shot. And it was the third time he threw like a sign on bonus on. And I'm like, all right, fine. Yeah, fine. I'll, I'll, yeah. Like, I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'll sure. see what this, <laughs> yeah. Like I'll, I'll see you Monday. And, and I remember that was such a vertical learning curve. It was such a different segment of the industry that I had never seen before, but that opened up so many doors. Can I pause you? Because I, what you were doing is negotiating. Mm-hmm. Was that your intention or was it truly just about your fear and you wanted to know your shit or was it both? I think it was a little bit of both. I think it was instinct, you know, like it was just something I'm a big person of trust your gut. Like I, Mm -hmm. I know when something feels right or doesn't feel right. And in that moment, the first time it felt good, but I I was like, nope, not yet. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the time lapse between the first time they, and when you actually said yes? Yeah, it was about a year. Wow. Um, so there was some significant like courting there back and forth, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe it was the appraiser's license, right? <laughs> did you throw out any numbers or did they just come back to you and change? Um, I think I bullshitted my income by 10. I think I said I made 10,000 more than what I actually was making. And then they offered five, I think more, you know, so the offer just kept getting sweeter the more we kept dancing around it. I want to take a moment and talk about that, Rachel. Yeah. And, you know, what you just said 
is one of the soundest golden nuggets around career development. And I remember talking to one of my friends. I, I was in my early 30s and I kept getting, like if I switched a job, I would uh, maybe get a $5,000 bump or something, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember talking to my friend and I had every bit of experience that she had, uh, maybe even more. Now, we weren't in the exact same industry, but relative to our areas of focus. And she made like $70,000 more. And I'm like, what in God's name? I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, she would share <laughs> with me magic? when she would, yeah, yeah <laughs> she would share with me like the bumps that she would get mm-hmm. going from one employer to the other. And I'm like, what is your secret? And she said, I take my current salary and I add 15000 to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ask for. She's like, they'll ask me what I make now and I don't answer. I say, this is what I'm willing to take. Yeah. That was the mind blow for me because we are all trained in those scenarios to answer the question, mm-hmm. what is it that you make now? They always ask that. Yeah. Well, the reason why they ask that mm-hmm. is because they're like, well, if I give them 5000 or 7000 more, that's going to get them enough to go. No, ladies, that's not what you do. It's <laughs> right? not. What is it that you want? And that's what you communicate. And always, if, your num- if the number you want is 10000 more, you always say 5000 more. And there's a comfort level that you have to get to, to even be able to do that, well, right? Well, it's called the anchoring effect. And I forget if we talked about this last time, but once you put a number out there, your brain is wired to it. So the second I, I come back and say, I want a hundred grand, that that's in their brain now. They've anchored the conversation mm-hmm. to that number. So we're either going to go up or down from it, but like that's the start. Once you put it out there, it's there. Like there's no going back. You have anchored the conversation around that number and that's where you're going to, you're not going to jump all of a sudden to 200,000. You're not going to go all the way down to 50, but you're definitely staying in that arena. So if you don't move that anchor north, it's never going to go there by itself. Like you have to get it there. Otherwise you're going to do this pendulum swing and just stay in the same pay range. Oh yeah. I remember the first time that I tried it. (laughs) I remember getting the offer letter and it was 15,000 more. And I'm like, like I was almost pissed, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> my God, why did I do this years ago? Like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then when I changed jobs again, I did the same thing. And I even negotiated PTO time. Yeah. Because the employer that I was going to had less PTO time out of the gate. And I said, no, I want all four weeks. Yeah. And they gave it to me. I think as women, too, we we don't negotiate nearly as much as we should, right? Like it just, for whatever reason, we don't ask for the raises. We don't ask for those things. Like I always push my friends, like you better ask for a raise at your next review, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and you'll get your, your best opportunity to see those generous pay bumps when you switch companies. Yeah. I've known people that leave a company, get the pay bump, and then eventually come back mm-hmm. so that they're paid what they should be paid. That's interesting too, because my dad 
grew up in the generation of you work at one place and you stay there your whole mm-hmm. life and where pensions actually existed. <laughs> yeah. And they'll take care of you. They'll give you a raise. It'll be a great career. And it has completely shifted from that where that's not how you get more compensation. You have to move in order to get more compensation. It's just sort of the reality of it. It's very unlikely because from a business perspective, like why would someone give you 10, 15% raise if you haven't done anything arguably different? Right. But, but what are you learning? Right. Like what's the value of what you're learning as an employee over time? Yeah. So you made the jump to PPG. How long were you with PPG? Almost nine years. So a good fit. Yeah, it was a really good fit. I love them. And it was, it was honestly like bittersweet to leave. I had a lot of really good memories, a really great, great group there. I had so much fun and it was, so basically I went to that PPG distributor And then PPG, there was an opening and I got a few people had nudged me like, Rachel, put your name in for that territory spot. Like, just do it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I just came over to refinish. What the heck? Like, I don't, what am I going to do? And everybody I knew was applying for it. So I was also feeling guilty of, yeah, but like all these other people want the job too. Like, I don't want to step on toes and piss people off. And then I just remember thinking about it and being like, you know what? Screw it. I'll put my name in. So I put my name in and I got the position. Um, And I was the territory manager for, you know, the Boston region. Um, And there was so much development there. They put me through night school. So I went and got my bachelor's degree. I worked there and then spent four, four or five years doing night school just to finish my bachelor's. Um, They sent me to all sorts of green belt training. There was so much education there that it was like, oh, wow. Like I, I was really developing over a long period of time. And they let me go on to different committees and not let me, but there was opportunities to like find my place and have Mm -hmm. all these different pockets that I could like grow and support and give back. And it was really kind of cool to be involved in all those things. But with any corporate company, the better you are, the more you do for the same pay. <laughs> you know, it started to get to that point where it was like, oh man, they're like, oh, go here, go there. And and I, to some degree, I, I put myself up to it, right? Like I was always like, oh yeah, I want to learn more about this or that. But then it turned into this expectation of continuous travel and mm-hmm. it got to be burdensome. You know, I have a seven-year-old son and it, it just got to be, you know, seven now. He was like two, three at the time when, you know, my husband and I were like, this is not... It was very difficult to manage if I was in New York and all of a sudden got asked to stay in Vermont overnight. It was like, oh no, like I got to find daycare. It was a bigger cluster to figure it all out. Yeah. But it was, it was a very cool learning experience. What was the point where you were like, it's time to move on? Like, like you said, it's bittersweet. And how did you know that the financial industry was where you wanted to go? You know, so I was doing work, they had 20 groups. So we were doing um, basically pocketed groups with some of the larger collision centers. We were getting them together when we were doing financial analysis. So my big thing, my final role there was business development manager and we were doing benchmarks. So I was doing benchmark reports, doing precision marketing reports. I was doing um, all sorts of like comprehensive planning for business owners to try and help them think through the future of the business. and it kind of got to that point where I was like, Oh, I want to learn more about this. Cause I was looking at their balance sheet, their PL. I was starting to understand, you know, taxes and, and different things. Cause my concentration at college when I did night school was sort of on this business planning space. So, um, I wanted more there. Like I really started all of a sudden, like the wheels on in my mind started focusing more on 
how these businesses should be run. Because in my mind, most people that own a collision shop are blue collar, right? Like they're roots, blue collar people that are a good skilled laborer that decide to open up a business. And that's two totally different skill sets. And I started to realize that some of these people were making money by accident. And I joke, they had their MBA money by accident. (laughs) That's brilliant. I I don't think I've ever heard that. (laughs) You got most coach and MBA. So I'm I'm just getting schooled. (laughs) Welcome to the East. So, um, (laughs) so basically there was people that were just, you know, lucky. And then there was other people that just had a good, the natural business acumen that they just understood what to watch. And that was sort of what drove for me. I was like, oh shoot, like there's a a gap here. And I realized like I was good at math. I was good at understanding those things and, and seeing things. And business owners were calling me all the time to ask those questions when I was at PPG, like, what should I do about this? What should I do about that? Like, Hey, do you know about this? It wasn't, it was no longer about product. It had nothing to do with that. It was business decisions that I was helping them with. And I realized like, this is sort of the path that I'm on. And I, I debated part of me wanted to open up a shop. And I, I, that was very much a consideration. Um, and that was part of the conversation, but I remember there was one month in particular where I think I'd only been home like three days out of the month between like, there was car shows on the weekends, there was trips, there was all sorts of fires that happened. it was just this back to back month. And I really had only been home for, if I did make it home, it was just asleep and I was back. I didn't see anyone. Like I was home and, mm-hmm. and asleep and the amount of daycare and hustle and like rearranging of our lives to make that work was exhausting. And I just remember being like, this isn't as much as I lo- I loved what I was doing. It really, I was so fueled and passionate by the job, but I kind of was like, you know what? I just can't do it. I need my own life too. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be a road warrior. Balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I toyed with, should I open up a shop? And that was for a year. I really toyed with, I think I want to do that. I think I want to do that. And then. And by shop, do you mean like mechanic shop or refinishing shop? An auto body shop. Um, At that point, after, you know, nearly a decade within the PPG arena, I felt really good on the auto body side. And I really was going to go in that direction. And then this opportunity kind of fell in my lap. And I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, like, even if that doesn't work out, which I mean, I'm blessed that it has, has more than worked out, but if it didn't work out in my mind, I was like, you know what, I'm going to learn some skills that are going to help me. If I do ultimately own a shop, I'm going to learn this whole thing about finance that I, from a totally different lever and angle than I'd ever been exposed to before. I'm going to get new perspectives. Like I'll do this. And if that doesn't work, I'll, I'll go back to that, that dream. But this, you know, it just, it was all by chance, you know? And you just took a liking and followed your instinct and gut into mm-hmm. the financial space. Yeah. Now you're currently a financial planner mm-hmm. and your target market is blue collar workers. Yeah. Yeah. You've been doing that for how long now? Uh, a little over two years. And how, how has that been? It's been so fun. It's been, it's been so cool to meet people. Part of me kicks myself how much I kept myself in a shell. I didn't network nearly as much as I, I was always a networker, but I didn't reach out. Like I am much more open to just like, if I see a good podcast now, I'll message someone and be like, Hey, like that was amazing. I'd love to just talk to you for five minutes. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what will come of it. I'm much more open now from making that switch and being more vulnerable with people and just being more open versus I think 
pre that decision for me, I always just kind of stayed in my lane and didn't really like branch out. It's been really Mm -hmm. cool to meet blue collar owners from across the US and just see what they're about and what they're doing. Because ultimately, it's sort of gotten me into these other little pockets of blue collarness. And um, it's been really cool. If you were to go back and you had an opportunity to talk to your early 20-something self and you could give her one or two nuggets of advice, what would you tell her knowing what you know now? I would say be more confident. I don't think I realized how much power I had all along. I think I underestimated a lot. I think men typically overcompensate. You know, they are much more apt to say, "Oh yeah, I got this. I'm I'm good at it." Uh, versus, and I talked with you know another friend of mine about this subject. Right, my friend Nicole. Uh, she always talks about competency and confidence, and how men and women are sort of different on that scale of what we value. And I don't think I realized early on that the bravado of some doesn't really mean anything, right? You know, that, you know, ultimately we all can put into existence what we're capable of. And that was sort of a lesson that I learned over my lifetime that even if you're not ready, just push yourself into it. Like you'll figure it out because even if you don't know the answer, there's always a manual to read. You can take your time and learn. Like if you make a mistake, you can fail forward. Like it's not as like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I think is probably the question I would I would tell myself to ask myself in those moments early on where I hesitated and just be more out there for sure. It's sound advice. I always tell my kids, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Mm-hmm. At least if you ask, whatever that is to whomever, at least now you have a shot. So true. Right? It's so simple. But we psych ourselves out, don't we? Mm-hmm. And we end up missing out on opportunities because yeah. we just don't ask. Yeah. And I think it's true of, of people as a as a whole. I think you hit the nail on the head, though. I think men sometimes are overconfident. And not that they are incapable of getting there. It's just men are more typical of saying yes and being confident about figuring it out on the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like as women, it's like I want to be 80% confident. Right. As men, they're cool with 40. <laughs> right, right. I think we just value that percentage a little bit differently before we'll right. say like, yeah, I'm in. Um, it's fascinating though, because I think, you know, we, you and I have talked about a lot of these self-development books and growth and abundant mindset and things like that. And th- those are things that I think I've grown into more in my later years. I should have read some of those books at 18, 19, 20, you know, it's all those things combined, right? Like having the willpower, you know, thinking positive thoughts, like the whole law of attraction thing, like all there's some merit to all these things that have been written about, about having a mindset around something that you want and, and willing yourself into the things that you see for yourself. So I think I would have had like a real deep chat with myself at like 19 and sat myself down and been like, look girl, like we're going to make this happen. But I wouldn't change anything though. Because it really, you know, to my earlier point, I think it's those struggles that create the lessons that, you know, without the two, it just doesn't work. So for everything I struggled through, it makes so many little things now easy for me that I see peers struggle with. Because, you know, I've already been down that road. It's like, oh, yeah, nothing now. You know, that the skin has been thickened. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that. I've actually started a list of... I'm going to do the top 10 books. And when my kids graduate college, 
one of the gifts is going to be these top 10 books that I think teach some of the most foundational life lessons that if all they did was reread those 10 books, Mm -hmm. they would just be at a whole nother level than anyone else. Yeah. I love that. But it may collect dust. They may never have it, but I've done my part and I put it in their hands. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you could just force it, right? Like maybe at dinner, you just play a podcast. Like this is what we're listening to tonight, family. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Like play it, you know, on there. Subtly just have it in the background. Subliminal messages. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, well, Rachel, I think this is the perfect time to launch into the red line round. And what the red line round is, just five rapid fire questions, no right or wrong answers. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. Are you ready? Ooh. Oh, man. I was not prepared for this. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? Who or what? Ooh. Um... Who or what? All right, is this timed, the response? Jeez. I should like play music or something. I know. Do, 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 do. Um, <laughs> I may have some. Who or what? No, I think there was one mentor early on. Uh, so it's a who. And it was a guy, Gary Brown, that I work for. He had the, the business acumen, the social acumen. He had a lot of things that I learned from him that I still know now. Um, Mm -hmm. He had command presence. He had the ability to speak publicly. Like there was a lot of traits there. Um, He was an entrepreneur. And I just remember being like, wow, that'd be really cool to be an entrepreneur one day and and do a bunch of different things. So I think that would be the the person that there was a lot of uh, direction from that person. Outstanding. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you feel stuck? A uh, couple places. One thing I absolutely love is MIT OpenCourseWare. So you can actually take and listen to the lectures for free. MIT offers like all sorts of courses. You can look at their exams. You can look at all, they publish all the stuff in this OpenCourseWare program. And I like I like science. If I didn't do this, if my whole journey was different, I would um, be into science for sure. Like astronomy, all that stuff. Really, I like a lot. I've attended like some of those classes virtually. It's just cool. Um, if not, I think pick up the phone. Um, I've found that a lot of what, it's not what you know, it's who you know. If I don't know the answer to something, I, I typically know someone who might know and I call them. And then they may lead me to a website or they may like lead me to the trough to learn myself. But I usually pick up the phone because I know someone's going to know what direct to save myself an hour online trying to find something. That's usually what I do. Mm-hmm. Love it. What excites you most about what you're doing right now? Mm. I think what excites me the most right now is I'm thinking a lot larger and more abundantly than I ever did before. I really only thought linearly in a certain direction. And now I'm thinking about like, well, why couldn't I have other businesses or other things or do other things. Like I don't need to be two dimensional. I think I'm open to the idea of being more who I am, more transparent, more vulnerable, but also, you know, what else could I be doing? I think that it's a new thing for me um, that I'm very excited about. I think it's my eyes are opening to other new things. So it's exciting. Infinite possibilities. Mm -hmm. What is a personal habit or practice 
that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit or practice? Uh, Morning routine, uh, which is difficult with a family and a seven-year-old and all those things. But what I define as a morning routine now versus pre-kid, totally different. Um, But meditation, putting that in there, you know, if I can't do it in the morning, at night, every book I've read, all these people that are like insane leaders, whatnot, the common thread of all these successful people that I'm reading about is that they all meditate. And I've found that it's been so impactful in my life just to set my intention for the day, visualize what I want, helps me be a little bit more patient. I don't have much of that, so I need it. <laughs> Rekindering souls, sister. I get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got none of that and I need some, so I'm working on it. And then finally, what's your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the skilled trades industry? Uh, my parting advice would be find the people that are in your corner, right? Seek them out and create good relationships with them because there will be people that they're going to be cheerleaders. And ironically, I found in life that the people you think are your cheerleaders often aren't. And the ones you never think would be are, but determine who those people are quickly and connect with people. I think a lot of my success, if you look at every opportunity came from someone I knew it was, it was someone I knew that was doing something and it was through conversations that sort of landed me in that space. Obviously my hard work got there too, but it was the combination of hard work and having a network of people that you know. So I think that it, it would be find your tribe, find the people that are in your corner and connect them to other people, connect yourself to other people and, and stay connected. Love it. Where and how can people connect with you, Rachel? Um, probably the best would be Instagram, Scary Spice, um, on Instagram. So it's my maiden name, which is, it's S-K-E-R-R-Y, uh, Spice. So kind of a rip on Scary Spice, imagine. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, you know, all those things, although I don't use those as much. Instagram I'm kind of on pretty frequently. Got it. And if they do look you up on LinkedIn, they would find you Rachel James under Rachel James Mm -hmm. Rachel thank you for being in the driver's seat tonight and sharing your story I think the biggest thing to bring this full circle that I think is so powerful with your message in your journey is that as women in this industry you can go in so many different directions and still be in the industry Even though you're in the financial industry technically right now, your clientele are blue-collar workers, which means you're still in the industry. Mm -hmm. So that's what I challenge women, and that's why I have so many uh, women on here in different verticals of the industry to get people thinking outside the box. Yeah. And you just followed your gut, and it took you on so many different twists and turns, and it just creates the possibility for other women to think outside the box besides what they're doing right now. So thank you for being courageous and being a trailblazer. Uh, Thanks, my friend. You are welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. I I enjoy our conversations in general, but this was really nice. It was a pleasure to be on, on this podcast. So thank you. Absolutely. I'm Rachel James. I'm a financial planner and I'm a femcanic. 
Courtney Castle is in the driver's seat next. This multi-talented young woman works full-time at a vinyl wrap shop in California. She's a diesel mechanic in the Army National Guard, and she's building a racing career. As if that isn't enough, Courtney is also in college majoring in marine biology, studying the anatomy and behavior of sharks. Be sure to tune in next week to hear from this dynamic and inspiring badass. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?